Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. I invite you to go in your Bibles. We're going to go to Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah chapter 7. We are in the final month of our spring session of our small groups, and so we have three more, uh, three more get-togethers in the different groups. The study guide is online, and the study guide will be available. Uh, it's printed in the foyer in the lobby when you are leaving. Um, just enjoy the time that we spend together in those small groups, living life together, sharing life together. Nehemiah chapter 7, Nehemiah is a book that is absolutely filled with leadership principles. Last week, we looked at the value of a good leader. God used Nehemiah to do a mighty work, a great work, a significant work. But understand this, Nehemiah was not alone. Now, there were times when Nehemiah felt like he was alone. There were times when Nehemiah's friends and fellow countrymen, he actually found out they were they were, you know, informants for the enemies, but God sustained him. Paul writes it this way in the New Testament, Romans 8, 31, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, and Nehemiah could say this, who can be against us? He was on a mission from the king, King Artaxerxes, easy for me to say, in a chapter that's filled with a bunch of names. I will be looking for a volunteer to read this. Uh, read, you know, today. If God is for us, who can be against us? The construction project came to a completion. We see that in today's passage. However, the rebuilding, rebuilding lives, that was just beginning. That was just getting started. Rebuilding lives is an ongoing process in life. And so we're going to learn from the Old Testament. We're going to see these principles. And I trust that this will encourage you, that will encourage us as the people of God living in this day and age. What does it look like to see a community rebuilt? What on earth are we here for? Why doesn't God just save us and then take us right to heaven? He leaves us here for a reason. So let's be about finding out what is this reason. Five building blocks for a thriving community. That's what we're going to lay out today. Five building blocks for a thriving community. And we're going to understand, we're going to see from this, Old Testament, Israel, their political and their religious, their spiritual life, their political life, their community life, was merged together. It was one. We are not living in that day and age, and we don't live in that kind of a community. So we can learn from the principles, but we are not the replacement of Israel. So we live as believers, but our primary citizenship is in heaven, but that's not all we think about, but it drives our perspective to how we live this life, this passing life here on earth. Shouldn't Christians be making a difference in their community, in their state, in their nation, and in the world? How are we going to do this then? Well, we look then here from Nehemiah from chapter 7. The first two verses give us our first building block, and that is we need faithful and God-fearing leaders. Faithful and God-fearing leaders, this is the best type of leader for any community, whether political or religious, a faithful leader who fears the Lord. That's going to be the best kind of leader. Whether he's a politician or she is a politician serving in government, local government, national government, representing a nation as an ambassador or as a person teaching in the church or serving in the church or leading in the church. What does the Bible say about this kind of a leader? Let's read Nehemiah 7. 
Verse 1, now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem. For he was more faithful and God-fearing, he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. A faithful and God-fearing leader. Proverbs tells us about a righteous leader, this kind of a leader. Proverbs 11, verse 10. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. Proverbs 28, 12. When the righteous triumph, there is great glory. But when the wicked rise, people hide themselves. Proverbs 28, 28. When the wicked rise... People hide themselves, but when they perish, the righteous increase. Proverbs 29.2, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. They watch the nightly news and they go, oh, oh. How is this played out? In a a real-time example in the Old Testament, in Esther 3.15, was a time when Haman was in charge, when he was the king's right-hand man. What does this kind of administration look like? The couriers went out hurriedly, Esther 3.15, by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. What do we see in that one verse? You have an administration that is completely disconnected and unconcerned. They don't give a rip about anybody in their citizenship. They're having a drinking party, and the whole rest of Susa, which being the capital and the empire, is completely in upheaval. And their king and his right-hand man don't care because it's fine with them. There was a different, after Haman was hanged, you have to read Esther on that, or the series is still online when we preach through that. Well, it's been quite a while ago now. Esther chapter 8, verse 15. Now we see a, a scene shift when Mordecai is in charge. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Why? Verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. They converted for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Do you have room, does your God have room for us? Can we serve and worship your God? It's not just a fear that's trembling afraid, it's an awe and a reverence of your God changed that whole plot around. And we remember what it was like under the administration of Haman Mordecai, he's a faithful man and he loves God. Give us more leaders like that. Well, Paul in the New, in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 2, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to pray? First of all, this is a priority. Then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. It's not wrong to pray, God, give us faithful and leaders who fear you. It is not wrong. We actually would encourage. It is not second rate for someone to go into the political realm as an ambassador for Christ and serve in a way that is like Mordecai or like Joseph or like Nehemiah. And they are faithful and they make a difference where they serve. Nehemiah tells us the project here is completed. In verse 1, Well, 
This is no small thing. I mean, God willing, the day comes and we cut a ribbon and we walk into a worship center on 30 and Forest, we can sum it up with the work was completed or at least phase one of the work was completed. That doesn't sum up all that has gone into working and preparing over 30 years for this to, to take place and for this to happen. They've been waiting on this over 150 years, 150 years, and in 52 days under Nehemiah's leadership, it happens. That's almost like a second when you compare it to all the time that they wasted not doing anything. The work was completed, done, phase one, done. Walls, gates, air up. And everybody's looking around saying, how did that happen? But we see a work ongoing. Now there's the rebuilding of lives. There's a shift that happens in this, in this book where it goes from the details and this is what is taking place and here's a, a construction project and it transitions into now here's the rebuilding of lives. This is the spiritual work that has to be done and we're never done here. We're gonna rebuild lives. We're gonna rebuild a community life. And we see here there's a growing quantity of leaders. In the work ongoing, there's a growing quantity of leaders. That's important. The number of leaders is growing in this ongoing work. So you write it in the blank there, a quantity of leaders. God is providing. Nehemiah is, is looking for them. He's raising them up. He's not just hoarding positions. It's not true that he wanted to be king and set himself up in the city as soon as they could lock the final gate click. I'm king. Blow the trumpet. Revolt is on. There must be an appropriate plurality of leaders in God's work. And this is true in the Old Testament and New Testament. In the Old Testament, you remember Moses leading the people called by God at the burning bush. God didn't go visit anybody else at the burning bush. And he leads the people out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness. And his father-in-law, all right, think about this, men, when your father-in-law says, hey, uh, can I talk to you? You know you're really messing up. And the humility of Moses, his father-in-law Jethro says, you're going to delegate any work or are you going to die doing it all yourself? What you're doing is not good, Moses. And Moses listened to him and the word was from the Lord through Jethro. And he said, you're right. And he delegated the work that those would be leaders in Israel. The kings of Israel, you say, oh, but what about the kings in Israel, pastor? Weren't they kind of on their own? They're king after all. Well, the provision through the law of Moses was every king that God would provide for his people was to write their own hand copy of the law. Anybody remember getting in trouble as a kid and having to write sentences? Word for word? Oh, You know, trying to do CPR on your hand. The king. Can I just order someone else to, you know, who's, who's, who's in my court? You know, you there. Can you write? Write the copy for me. No. King, you write your own copy of the law, and the prophet will oversee, the man of God will oversee that you write the copy of the law because there will never come a day that you can say as king of Israel, oh, I didn't know I was supposed to do that. I didn't know that we were supposed to only worship in Jerusalem. I didn't know you wrote it by hand yourself, and they forgot that, and they disrespected that, and the book was set aside and whenever you set aside a book, whether you are a nation or a church or a family or an individual, you set aside the word of God and you allow other things, listen to me, allow other things to take the place of the word of God and priority of your life. What will begin to happen? Read the book of Judges and that will be your life, a downward spiral, a nation's downward spiral, a church's downward spiral as everything else comes in and becomes more, more important, more of a priority. When the exile happened and they were carried away, it did away with the kings of Israel and they were still waiting on a promised king. We're still waiting on a descendant of David. In AD 70, do you realize? 70 AD, when Rome came in and they leveled Jerusalem, all the records are gone. There are Israelites today that do not receive and do not regard Jesus as 
their Messiah King. They're still waiting on a Messiah King to come. The problem is there can be no one come and say, check my credentials because they're gone. 40 years after Jesus, about 80, 70, wiped out, gone, destroyed. God is sovereign over nations. He's sovereign over everyone and everything. Jesus is the Messiah King, and they were waiting on him, and Nehemiah knew, we've got to get this city ready. In the New Testament, we see the quantity of leaders. This is illustrated through the plurality that Jesus had the 12 disciples, but he primarily invested into Peter, James, and John. And then in the example of the early church, they appointed elders for them in every church, Acts 14.23. And Titus 1.5, Titus is written to from the Apostle Paul, and he says, appoint elders in every town. There's going to be a plurality of leaders leading in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now consider this. I want you to think about this. What's, what's unique about the country that we live in? What is distinctively different about this country? The way that this country was formed and founded that is really quite forgotten now, by and large, but it was a diversity of power, diversifying power, that there would not be an oligarch, there would not be a dictator, there would not be one branch that would be the all-consuming branch of government in this republic. But there would be the executive branch, there would be the judicial branch, and there would be the legislative branch. Where do you think they come up with these ideas from? It's a Judeo-Christian background. It's an experiment. Let's see how long this nation or any other nation can endure on the earth under this framework. And it's always to be held, but you can't hold it without leaders that are faithful and fear God. Because if you don't fear God, you want everyone to fear you. And so you'll do anything you can to have people over-honor you. Think about that. Why is the freedom of speech so important? Because we as Christians... And with that framework that was in the fabric of the founding of this country, believe that you cannot mass convert people to become Christians. You cannot go through the waters of baptism and come out a Christian if you're not a Christian. Water cannot save you. And there have been all of these mixtures down through history of a, of a priest taking a, an army into battle and taking a, a branch off a tree with leaves and just throwing water, making the army Christian. One, that's not baptism. Two, it doesn't do anything except cool the guys off as they go into battle. But when you mix that with a belief and then people are trusting in that, it becomes a false and a misplaced trust. There must be a personal response of repentance and faith in Christ. And without that, you can, you're not a believer. You're not a Christian. You're not a follower of Christ. It's those two parts of I turn, I admit I'm a sinner, and I trust in Jesus. You have to have those two parts. And you can't make people do that. So this framework provided for Whatever the belief is, you are able to speak your belief and then listeners have to reason out. They need to research out what is it that you're saying? Is it true and is it trustworthy? Can I bank my eternal soul on what you are saying? And we as Christians say, we are going all in with the one who died for me and rose again Show me who else did that. So yes, I'll commit to him my life today and my family and my future because he's worthy. And there's no other leader, including myself, that is worthy of this kind of absolute trust. That's why the freedom of speech is important. Because if you have a bad idea, you need to be able to say it so that people can say, that person has bad ideas. I'm not going to follow them. 
the highest quality of leaders. It's not just quantity, but we're talking about quality now. The quality of leaders, there must be an unwavering commitment to elevating the right kind of leaders in God's work. And understand this, loved ones, there is no sphere outside of God's work. You say, well, isn't there supposed to be this separation of church and state, pastor? Yes, to this end. The state cannot make people become part of a church. That's the separation. It is not that Christians, followers of Christ, cannot go into political ministry and service or that they have to shed that if you're a teacher in a public school or wherever you may work in your influence that you just cannot be a believer bringing the gospel. Now, what will that probably incur and bring on? Trouble, resistance, pushback, and persecution. And now we join all of our brothers and sisters for 2,000 years. So that's where we're reminded this isn't supposed to be, and it's not going to be the place where we can say, oh, I'm at home here. No. No, we don't say that. Our loved ones that go in Christ from this life to the next life, they are at home because of Jesus. And we want as many people to go with us into that eternal home as possible. How do you get there? Not by someone making you. It has to be a response of repentance and faith that you come to know Christ. The brother of Nehemiah was put in charge. There's two names there. You can work out that there's, there's much discussion over as this two individuals but I am inclined to think, and I would suggest that this is actually the same individual. It's Nehemiah's brother, and he gives one shortened name, and then he goes on in Hebrew, and he expands further to give more of his character, the expanded name. His brother was put in charge over Jerusalem. Under him were the two other rulers that we read back in Nehemiah 3. The graphic of the, the towers will come up. Here, here's where he was going to serve, the tower of Hananel. And we remember there was Rephaiah, the son of Hur, and there was Shalom, the son of Halohesh. And he was the one, his daughters worked with him back in Nehemiah chapter 3. And one was responsible for half of Jerusalem, and the other was responsible for half of Jerusalem. And now Nehemiah says to his brother, I put him in charge because why? He was a quality leader. He was more faithful, it says in verse 2, and a God-fearing man. More than many. This is not saying he was the only one, but when you added them all up, this guy was standout quality of character. He was a faithful and God-fearing leader. Secondly, the building block we need is just laws. Righteous laws. Right laws. Not just popular opinion. What laws are just and righteous? Nehemiah 7, verse 3, And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem some at their guard posts, and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. You get the picture of what's going on in Jerusalem? It looks a little bit like a major city that everybody's left, and the houses went to blight, and they have to just be taken out and condemned. The city is not really a place you want to live, but things are changing. There's a new leader in charge. There's leadership in place. There's security in place. And so here we begin with, if, if a governing body, now there's three organizations, there's three entities that have been ordained by God. The first was the family in Genesis. One man, 
one woman for life, and Jesus affirmed it in Matthew 19. That's a boundary set by God. There is the next entity was human government, and then the church in the New Testament. Those are three institutions ordained by God. In other words, God is the author of them. He's the one that made them, put them into place. Therefore, he gets to say what it is and what it is supposed to be and do and what it is never supposed to be and do. And you can't, you can question it and you can go against it. Try that on gravity. It doesn't end well. These are laws. These are clear boundaries. For each of these groups, whether it be a family, whether it be government, whether it be church, and right here, a message like this just puts me and this church at odds with so much in our culture and world today. Nehemiah's finished the construction project, there's walls, there's gates. Now he's rebuilding the community and it cannot be every man does that which is right in his own eyes. We've been there and done that. He's read the book of Judges. We need to do things a right way, a righteous way. There should never be a blurring of God-ordained boundaries. Marriage cannot be redefined and it end well for that person, that people, that family, or that nation. Marriage is one man, one woman, for life. And yes, we live in a broken world, but listen to me, loved ones, children of God. All sex outside of marriage is sin. It doesn't matter how old you are. Marriage is to be honored because it's pictured as Christ's love for the church. That's the real deal of marriage. And Christ's love was not a selfish love. It was a sacrificial love. There should never be a blurring of God's ordained boundary on life. You shall not commit murder. That includes those who are in their senior years and they're no longer productive, some would say, they're no benefit to us anymore. They're taking up space. Not according to God. He's the one who gives life. That includes the preborn that are inside a mother's womb and the awful stain and sin of abortion on our land. Over 60 million children have been murdered in their mothers, should be the safest place on planet Earth, their mother's womb. And instead, it ends up being a tomb for them. You realize that since about the time I was born, 60 plus million, I think it's about 62 million. You want to do the economic numbers on that? That there's 62 million missing in this nation since 50 years? And my one married to another one has turned another three who are to be married and reproduce, and they're gone. They're missing. Loved ones, we cannot go against God's plan, and it end well. But thank the Lord for mercy. And if someone has committed that sin, understand it's not the unforgivable sin. Jesus said, if you've hated someone without cause, you've committed murder in your heart. Guilty. And what do we do with guilt and shame? Go to the cross. Go to the one who died for us. What about property? No stealing, no coveting. Do you understand what Nehemiah is doing? He's placing boundaries around the city that if people are going to move back in the city, they actually want to know that the house they build, they'll be able to live in and be protected. That we'll be able to work, that God has given that as a gift to us. Six days you shall work. You need to take a day of rest and worship. Do you understand how God designed that to Adam and Eve in the garden? That work is a gift to you. 
And it is an evil and wicked government that would take work from you that you could contribute to society and say, stay at home and we'll send you a check. Do you understand what is that, that is doing? It's stepping in between God and that person. And it's sinful. And it's destructive. Our identity has been dis- designed by God. Our genders, designed by God. It's a gift. We're created in God's own image. And who hates God and everything that bears his image? The enemy. Satan, the devil. And so he works in, and now he's just pressing in to work into younger ages and younger ages for them to what? Look in the mirror and say, it's not good. God, you've lied about me. You didn't know what you were doing when you made me. I know better than you. And so I will, and now an industry is going to be created to the millions and even into the billions for people to rework what God made. And you check the numbers on the suicide rate of those who go through these reassignment surgeries. And mark my word that this is the word of God, and it will long outlast my word but I'm called to tenderly, faithfully proclaim that when that baby is placed into the arms of a mother and father, it is a gift of life, and God doesn't make mistakes. The Bible says that all sin is lawlessness, and this is why there's such a viral state of rebellion in our world. How do we fit in this world? There are a lot of churches that are just forming to the world. Well, this is too too much. We can't stand up against this. But the church is to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth. So once you you just give away the truth, what do you have left? I would argue nothing. Nothing of value and nothing of eternal substance. There's clear boundaries, and Nehemiah sets the boundaries. Then he puts wise policies in place. Let's keep the gates shut until we're ready to open them. In the, in the ancient Near East, they would open them at sunrise and close them at, at dusk. He said, that's not going to work because people are still sleeping. We're not ready for this. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to wait till the sun is up and hot, and then we'll open the gates. And everyone will be all hands on deck, and we'll close the gates when we go home to have dinner with our families and we won't have to worry about anybody coming through and then we can have minimal people watching the gates. These are wise policies. Nehemiah is exemplifying the principle that external nations would not influence his decisions. He wasn't polling all of the enemy nations. What, What are your systemic problems at home? And let me work all of that out with the policies in Jerusalem. He said, no, 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 no. You're responsible for your nation, and I'm responsible right now for this nation, and we will all answer to God for how we were stewards in the nation where we were born, where he planted us. Wise policies. We endeavor to do this as a church. Knowing who is here and who's serving and what is our best way to promote safety and It's wise policies. And then we see prioritize safety. He sets up the guards in the city to prevent danger and to promote righteousness. This is what a government is supposed to do. Now understand, we are not Israel. So mixed there was the temple and all of the singers. It was all one. They were a people of God preparing the way for the Messiah to come. But the New Testament has something to say about governing bodies. What they are designed by God to do, primarily to serve and protect their citizens and the members. As elders in the church, that's our aim. How do we serve? How do we lead? How do we protect this flock that does not belong to us? It's been purchased by the blood of the lamb, the shepherd. It's his flock because he gave his life for the sheep. Well, Paul wrote to the 
Romans, because no doubt they were saying, how do we function in this increasing intensity? In Romans 13 and verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those, who, those that exist have been instituted by God. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct. Let me say that again. Maybe there's a politician listening. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct. Those who go to work, pay their taxes, abide by the laws. Not to be a terror to them, but to bad. You see the dichotomy here? Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Would you hear what Paul is asking? What does a nation look like that, that people don't fear those in authority? I'm, sh I'm sure we have no concept of what this might look like when people don't care about those who are in authority. It starts at home, loved ones. Mom and dad say, hey, do this, do that. No! What's in the heart? I hate authority, and I can't get to God. He put you in his place, and I'm going to let you know how I feel about him. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword, that's capital punishment, in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. So Christians, Paul is saying, listen up. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Prioritize safety. Letter D, personal responsibility. He sets up the guards. And he puts guards in front of people's, their own house. Take responsibility for your house. Don't, don't give away the responsibility for raising your children to others. You've, God's given them to you. Take responsibility to work, to provide, to protect life, to be a good steward of all that God entrusts into your care, into our care, because we will give an answer to him one day. Every word, every attitude, and every deed, nothing escapes him. So we saw in question 18 today from the New City Catechism. Personal responsibility. A corrupt government, a dysfunctional church says we'll do it all instead of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Just come attend. We're good with that. Just come attend. Come see the show. Come get encouraged and then go and then come back next week and we'll rely on advertising. That's not the church. Church is where we serve. Because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So if I'm following him, don't you think I should look somewhat like him in how I live my life? Would I want that? By no means am I perfect in that. But I want to be. There's a desirable environment. Just laws. It ends up in a place that you actually want to be in. You actually want to belong there. You hear people talk about like, can I get in there? Are all the lots gone? Is there room for me to build a house in there? Is that church still taking people into membership there? I hear what God is doing there. Can I go all in there and not just 
frequent the door every now and then and attend. I hear the call of God on my life to commitment, and I will answer. This week is the National Day of Prayer. Wherever you live, let me encourage you. Find out if your community has something with the, nas the National Day of Prayer. I thank God for our community, Richmond, 1220 at the City Hall. We actually have a city council and a mayor and those who serve who are willing to step out and say, we will recognize this day. Not every city does that. And they will let us pray and they never hand me exactly what I have to say or not say. They give me names of who we're praying for, but they've never said, now you can't pray only in the name of Jesus. So we honor them and we pray for them. We, are we? Are we praying for our community leaders the way we should be? Lord, thank you. We got a new chief of police in Richmond. God bless him. Bless our mayor, city council. Help them to do what, this is where blessing is. This is where people want to come into that community. Thank you, God, for those who serve. Local communities, it's usually not for the paycheck. It's because they want to make a difference. Do we just take that for granted like it's just owed to us? And we just go complain at the, the person who, you know, plows the street, they didn't do it fast enough or good enough? Or do we say as Christians, thank you, right? That would be refreshing. We're blessed to live where we live. So let's not miss that. And Nehemiah is rebuilding now the community. Walls, gates, done. Okay, so we need this kind of a leader, God-fearing and faithful leader. We need laws that are righteous and just. And thirdly, an accurate list of members. An accurate list of members. Here, God led Nehemiah to conduct a roll call. Let's check out the genealogical roots. Ancestry longbeforeancestry.com. Let's find out who's here. Let's reorganize this community. Let's get the records together. Let's trace our, our roots here. Who's in? Who's out? Who's ready to lead? Who's not ready to lead? Who's qualified to lead? Who's not yet qualified to lead? Who is disqualified? They cannot lead. We've got to find this out because we've been down the road of just doing it however we want to do it, and we ended up in a far country. How about let's not go down that road again? Let's do things the right way. First of all, we see those who returned. Those who returned, and we'll start here in verse five. You pray for me as I read these names, okay? He says, then, then God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first. And I found written in it, all right? So he's talking about the first return under Zerubbabel. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, and Nehemiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvi, Nehem, Bena. The number of the men of the people of Israel... The sons of Perosh, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Era, 652. The sons of Pehath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 845. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Binui, 648. The sons of Bebai, 628. The sons of Asgad, 2,322. The sons of Adonachiam, Adonikam, try that, 667. The sons of Bigvi, 2067. The sons of Adon, 655. The sons of Ater, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Hashem, 328. The sons of Bezai, 324. Sons of Hareph, 112. The sons of Gibeon, 95. The men of Bethlehem and Netophah, 188. The men of Anathoth, 128. The men of Beth as Maveth, 42. The men of Kiriath Jerem, Chef Ira, and Bira, 743. The men of Ramah, 
and Gibeah, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 123. The men of the other Nebo, 52. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Haram, 320. The sons of Jericho, 345. The son of Lod, Lod Hadid, and Ono, 721. The, son of, the sons of Sena, 3,930. So he's, he's listing all of these ind- individuals who have come. These are the ones who, they came back. There was Zebra, uh, with Zerubbabel. I think, the, uh, I think the graphic will come up of the, the returns, okay? So there's the first one, 538, coming back, the first group to be released from exile. You can go home. These are the ones who came home with him. Then would come a second time with Ezra, and then a third with Nehemiah. Now, between, I'll say this, between Ezra's list and Nehemiah's list, there's some discrepancies. Some of the reasoning, you can work this out, you're reasonable people. There's a lot of things written on this, but some would suggest, I would argue for this in just a short way, it could be an error in transcription of numbers, or those who said they were going to come back, and here's a list of those who actually came back. I would suggest that is most likely um, what we're looking at here. Then there's those who are qualified to serve. That's our, that's our next group. Those who are qualified to serve, and we see this beginning in verse 39. We talk about, we're going to look at these different groups, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, temple servants, these individuals, all right, 39 to 60. The priests, the sons of Jediah, namely the house of Jeshua, 973, the sons of Immer, 1,052, the son of, sons of Pesher, 1,247, the sons of Haram, 1,017, the Levites, the sons of Jeshua, namely of Kedmiel, the sons of Hodava, 74, the singers, the sons of Asaph, 148, the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ater, the sons of Talman, the sons of Achab, the sons of Hadatiah, the sons of Shobai, 138, the temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hesupha, the sons of Tabath, the sons of Keros, the sons of Sia, the sons of Padan, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Shalmai. They had a role going there. The sons of Hanan, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Rehiah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Pesia, the sons of Bezai, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nefushism, the sons of Shazam, the sons of Bakba, the, the sons of Hakafa, the sons of Harher. The sons of Basleth, the sons of Mehadiah, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barcos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Timah, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hadapha, the sons of Solomon's servants, 57, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sophrath, the sons of Perida, the sons of Jelas, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Shephathiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pokereth Hasbaim. Whew, there you go. Put that on the back of an NBA jersey right there. <laughs> The sons of Ammon, this, all the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up. Uh, let's see, do we wrap it right there? Okay, stop right there. Give myself a little rest, okay? No, 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 we're not done yet. We're not done yet. Pride goes before a fall. So hold on. Now think about this. All of these individuals, they're all, they're, they're called to serve. We have priests, we have Levites, we have singers. We have gatekeepers, and I'm, I'm thinking like the, our church, like, you, you know, we've got those who serve. Uh, there are those who served with the priests. There's the singers, men and women. Music plays a huge part in worship, loved ones. You have the gatekeepers. That's our security, our greeters. Hey, welcome, good morning. Come on in. You got the temple servants. They're, they're brought into the miscellaneous duties of the temple. Then the sons of Solomon's servants brought into the temple ministry. And think about the, the early church. In Acts chapter 6 is where there's a complaint that arises in the church and the church leaders are in danger of going to take care of the Hellenistic widows and leaving the ministry of the word and prayer. And what do they do? They say, you need to give us seven men and we're going to focus on character, quality of these individuals. Quantity is important. Quality is more important. The need will be met. And Acts 6, 1 to 7 tells us that at the end, the church is multiplied. What could have been derailing for the church in its infancy ends up being a catapult that people are saying, wow, did they take care of their widows so well. You got room in that church for me? Can you tell me about your Lord? 
Next, we see the letter C, those unqualified to serve. And we see this in 61 to 65. Here's a, here's a hiccup. Here's a problem. Those unqualified to serve. 61, the following were those who came up from Telmela, Telesha, Cherub, Adam, and Immer, but they could not prove their father's houses, nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nekoda, 642, also of the priests, sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hekaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife of the daughters. Now note this, see this note? Wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. He jumped ship with his Israelite name. He married into the nations and took that name. This This is not insignificant. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. What's going on here? What's taking place here? Well, some were unqualified to serve. This was an honor to be a priest assigned by God. It was passed down through the family lineage. But without proof of birth, without approval from God, these men were not fit for priestly service. They couldn't just come in and say, do you know who I am? Do you know what I've done? I'll do this now. God owes me. Nope. In the New Testament church, to rightly belong to the church, one must first rightly belong to God. So to receive into membership, every individual has to be able to declare their testimony of salvation. How did I come to faith in Christ? a healthy understanding of the gospel. Not a total understanding, but a right understanding of the gospel. A public profession of faith in the waters of baptism after salvation in a church of like faith or here. This is required to receive that person into fellowship. And some people have been quite offended and have left and said, if you don't take my own personal baptism that I did for myself somewhere, or if you, I don't, I don't have a testimony of salvation, but I guess you don't want me here. It wasn't for Nehemiah to look at the person over and say, yeah, you look pretty good, come on in. He isn't God. And God has laid out, this is, this is my plan. And in the New Testament, there's a, there's a way to receive people in, and it's you need to hear their testimony of salvation, that it is a believing church. It is a converted membership. Now, is every person that joins absolutely a, a, a convert to Christ? No. But they said they were. Do you understand the difference? They made a testimony of faith. It wasn't a repeat after me. You're good to go. We have another member. What good is it, loved ones, to be a member of a church if you're not a member of God's family? That's the problem with infant baptism, to make you a member of the church, but it does not make you a member of God's family. Therefore, it does you no eternal good. And it leaves conversion, it leaves confusion about conversion, mass confusion. Then comes discipleship, then comes community life. They were to serve, just, you know, you can be in the temple as servants, and we're going to wait until you can either show your paperwork or until God raises up a priest, and they would have the Urim and the Thummim, which would be a, uh, two different rocks, and the priest would go, it's like casting lots before the Lord. Over this individual Lord, he doesn't have, is he qualified, yes or no? And they would put it into the priest's garment, and the priest would pray, and the priest would pull out the rock, and it was a yes or a no. And the Lord was sovereign over the casting of lots, and that person would either be yes or no, you may not. So they were instructed to wait. Exodus 28, verse 30, here's the background of the the Urim and the Thummim. And in the breast piece piece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Do you see the heart of the priest? Do you see the heart even of a pastor before the people? Do lists matter? Yes. Our membership list, it matters. Every person, every name. That's why we read, would you want your name just to not matter? 
saying, oh, you know who I am? I want my name to matter. So that's why we would even take and not just skip over and say, well, there's a lot of difficult names, so let's just scoot right on. No, 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 no. Number four, liberality and giving. We come down to the end. God's doing a work. He's rebuilding these people. And we see in verses 70, uh, let's see, I, I think I missed 66. I think I stopped off there. I don't know what I'm doing to the people in the back. This was a lot of, there's a lot of scriptures here. But let's start with uh, 66. The whole, assembly get, uh, 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 the whole assembly together was 42,360. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now we get to verse 70, and we see the liberality in giving and how they gave. Now, some of the heads of father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury a thousand derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of father's houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priests' garments. Let's unpack this. First of all, there was a big giver. A big giver. This, this, the governor gave an immense amount. I mean, he gave big time. And the record is here. And he's not giving it to, for a pat on the back. It's just the record, just as it's important to keep records. How is a local church provided for? How is the giving to global missions provided for? It's people give sacrificially. They give as God lays on their heart, as God leads them to give according to their ability. Now, loved ones, God is the greatest giver. So here we have the governor, and he gives a massive amount. Our brother, half-brother of Jesus, James 1, 5, he says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. What kind of giver is God? He's a generous giver. He gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So the governor is a big giver. And then the next one is there were some great givers. And this is an important word, some, some of the heads of father's houses gave. They gave a significant amount. But notice it wasn't all of them. It was just some of them. Some of them saw what was going on and wanted to be involved. And they gave sacrificially. Paul gives instruction in Romans 12 about the spiritual giftedness in, in the church. And he says this in verse 6, Romans 12, 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith or preaching or teaching, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes or gives in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So as we approach, you know, our, our regular, it's about $5,000 a week is, is, is where we are in our weekly budget. And there's been giving toward the future and toward the building on 30 and Forest. We have, God's doing this in our church. And God may be calling others to do more. And to say, you know, I have that extra vehicle. I have that extra property I don't need. I have that extra uh, up north something. Do I really need that? Or, or would I want to invest significantly into the kingdom of God? You search that out with the Lord. And that brings us to the many willing givers. Notice how it's just not all about the governor, the governor, the governor, the governor, the governor, 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 governor. I don't forget the, some of the father's houses, you know, the heads of those households, some of them gave. Now the people are saying, hey, can we get in on this? That our children can get on this. Like, here's a quarter. 
And you know what they can say? I helped build that building. Here's a dollar, and I'm helping and partnering with missionaries around the world. That's how the need is met. It's not my, well, when I get $5, then I'll, well, I'll get $10. Well, if I get a pay raise, well, if I, you know what? When will that happen? Trust the Lord and be engaged in his work. When we give, it's a loud testimony of our thankfulness to God and our trust in him. 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says this. He's taken a love offering for the saints in Jerusalem. So he writes to this church. They were a wealthy church. And he says, now considering the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Verse two, on the first day of every week, let each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there'll be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. There will be accountability with this gift. Some of you will go with me and you'll see what you gave, the group collected, and you'll be there when we deliver it to those in need. Second Corinthians, he writes and he reminds them about what they said they were gonna do. You know, I committed. I filled out that card. Mm, how am I doing? He says this. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves. Now here, if you listen to anything on giving, this is what you need to come away with. That they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Hey, listen to me, church. Follower of Christ. Let me just say what Paul said. See that you excel in the grace of giving also. Put God to the test. Give to him first. Invest into his kingdom. And lastly, live in fellowship. Live in fellowship. This is in verse 73. This community is being rebuilt. They're living life together for the glory of God and for the good of all peoples. Something's happening here. And they're worshiping and they're walking and they're working together. And God is doing something. Verse 73, so the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. You see, there, there's this sense of, there's peacefulness. There's a, ah, God has been so good to us. He's done such great things for us. You can see here that as this chapter closes and all we've been through in our study up to this point, now order's been established. There's a functioning community in place here in Jerusalem there's a structure. It's ready. It's ripe. It's ready to go. God's been working in, in and through Nehemiah and through those who served with him. And now we can see that peace can be maintained, but it's not guaranteed. They're going to still have to have that personal responsibility. They're going to have to do what's right. But a thriving community is there and peace can be maintained. And what is it? Peace with God and peace with one another. If you don't have peace with God, you can never have right peace with one another. So what are these five building blocks? What do we need in our church? What do we need in our families? What do we need in our nation, in our world? Faithful and God-fearing leaders. Just laws, accurate lists of members, a liberality in giving, that is a generosity toward God and others, and live. What's the opposite of living? Dying. A good leader is trying to help people live and not just exist. Live for the glory of God and for the good of all people. Can this be said of us as a church? Oh, I pray that it, it can and it will be for generations to come. 
Let me ask you these questions, loved ones. Where is God leading you to excel in giving or perhaps to excel in serving, to grow, to step out in faith? Where is God leading you? No arm twisting and no manipulation and no guilt trips. What is God leading you to do? What is God leading to me? Have we surrendered our all to Jesus? Are we still holding back, thinking that's gonna work out somehow? Oh, surrender, surrender. Begin with your heart, your life. And then what's your next step? To develop your character and your faithfulness in the work of God. Take that step today. Some are taking that step of baptism today. I know this was a, this was a long chapter with lots of challenges in it. But isn't it fitting at this time in this season in our church, in this, in this family life of what God has done and what he's doing and what we expect him to do in our future? Can we trust him? Yes. Do you trust him? Let's stand together. Father, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the power of the cross. I thank you for this leader, Nehemiah, the examples that we learn from him. Father, we need you. Forgive me, forgive us for unfaithfulness. Forgive me of being stingy or forgetful in giving to you and to others. Father, use me and use us for your glory. I pray that if anyone is listening and they've never surrendered, they've never given their life to you, their heart to you, that today would be the day of their salvation and that they would grow in grace. Thank you for your church and what you're doing here for the honor and glory of Jesus in whose name we pray. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.